Welcome to the Reimagining Faith podcast with the Pastors Jackson. This is a podcast for seekers, dreamers, and fellow sojourners who are trying to figure out what it means to be followers of Jesus in the 21st century. Today's episode is brought to you by our patrons, who generously make this work possible. If you'd like to contribute as little as $5 a month, you can go to patreon.com slash reimaginingfaith for more information. You can also take a moment to rate and review our podcast on Apple or Spotify and just share the podcast with someone that you think would appreciate it. Also, I wanted to give you a quick update that our church website is officially up. So, you can check us out on opentablepotstown.com. Again, opentablepotstown.com. The link will be in the description. We'll be adding more content as we get closer to our official launch date on September 11th, so keep an eye out. Now, on to the episode. Nicole and I wanted to talk about what it means to be a good interfaith ally, uncovering a lot of the blind spots that even the most well-meaning Christians have. So I could think of no better person to help us out than my good friend, Rabbi Rachel Jackson. Rachel is the rabbi of Agudas Israel Congregation in Hendersonville, North Carolina, and is one of the co-hosts of the Down the Wormhole podcast, which you should also be listening to. She shares her experience being the only Jewish kid growing up next to Focus on the Family, what it's like being the only non-Christian clergy at an event, and ways to use whatever privilege that you do have to make space for others. I always have fun with Rachel, and I think that you will too. So, without further ado, let's get to our conversation with the Rabbi Rachel Jackson. So happy to have you on yet another different podcast, Rachel. Uh, you and I have been podcasting together on the Down the Wormhole podcast for just about almost exactly three years now. So having you as a guest on another podcast is both like comforting, but also strange. So I want to just name that. right. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. But I am really glad. I'm really glad to be on here with Zach. But more than that, I'm really glad to be on here with Zach and Nicole, um, the pastors. Jackson. You can just say Nicole. You can just say Nicole. Oh. You don't have to say Zach and Nicole. <laughs> <laughs> you know, thank you for naming that. Yeah, yeah. I'm grateful yeah, for that. We're trying I, to be inclusive here, but uh, so we'll say Zach too. With the pastors and Rabbi Jackson. Yes, yes, <laughs> That's yes. right. Yes, <laughs> that's good. Good point. Yeah, it's not just our name that keeps us connected, though. True. Mm. True. So you have had uh, quite a journey to getting to where you are today. So I want to give people a little bit of a sense of your uh, your placidness uh, in terms of your vocation. So you Excellent. you came to uh, to the to the rabbinate. Is rabbinate, that the right? Yeah, yeah, it sounds okay. a lot like rabbit. Yeah, to yeah. the rabbinate. <laughs> Thinking that. Yeah, yeah, it's unfortunate. I mean, we have pastoral, right? Doesn't that mean like open fields and rabbits live in the open fields? So we're all just. We're all just. Uh, that's a whole bunch of. Um, <laughs> that's a whole Word lot of pulling stuff out of the air, right so, there. Speaking of pulling things out of the air, this is my transition. You uh, you came to the Ravenet after you'd already had a career, right? Yes. So can you tell us a little bit about what drew you into this? Absolutely, absolutely. So. Um, I, from when I was a little girl, I was like, I love chemistry. I want to do chemistry. Chemistry is everything. And so that's what I did. And I did that through childhood, my formative years, got my degree in it, started working in it, loved it. Um, and there was never any push out of chemistry. So I just sort of want to make that clear. I think that there's the difference between something that's a push and something that's a pull. And mm. there was never really any push out of chemistry. So while I was doing my job, loving it, loving the companies that I was working for, doing good stuff like small molecule drug work or um, environmental jet fuels, um, jet fuel that you can make from corn and that's and yeast, which is just a lot of fun and smells somewhere between a bakery, a taqueria, and a garbage dump. Like, it was always wonderful <laughs> walking into work that day. 
This is like, well, what are we working on? (laughs) I was like, hmm, cornbread. (laughs) And then, oh my God, it's too much of it. So like cornbread at the dump. That's it. And it was so so good. I loved it. While I was doing that though, and this is in my 20s, mid-late 20s, I was also an active volunteer, participant, congregant at a congregation, um, Jewish congregation, which isn't something that I experienced as a child. Um, We just lived far too far away from a synagogue to really go. And so when I then had my own decisions, I said, no, no distance is too far for me. And so I just went to a synagogue and they embraced me and I loved it and I started doing it. Um, I'm giving you my elevator speech. And at one point, uh, Rabbi Josh Rose says to me, you know, you could do this as a profession. And I looked at him and I went, you're nuts. I've got a job. I just like this. And then I had an accident, fell down, went boom, had a whole lot of time on my hands. And that's when I started realizing, ask myself about the pull. That, okay, yes, I love chemistry and I love my job. And I had a job with benefits, like actual benefits. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't realize I'd be giving that up. (laughs) And I thought, well, what am I being pulled toward? I'm being pulled toward helping the world, not just in an environmental way, because I'm a really good cog in the wheel. It's a good wheel, and I'm a good cog, but that's all it is. And Such a cute little cog. That's right. <laughs> Help it go round and round like a little hamster on a wheel. Um, <laughs> but I wanted to impact the world as Rachel. I wanted, mm. I wanted to do something that no one else could do. And I thought the way I can do that is through Judaism. I can do that through sharing my love of Judaism and sharing my love of text and liturgy and saying yes, because I love the ability to just, how do we get to yes? That's how I've sort of led my rabbinate. How do I get to yes? Not, no, that's against halakha. That's against Jewish law. No, that's not how we've ever done that. No, like, I want to say yes. And I've had a lot of experience. So growing up, I grew up outside of Colorado Springs, far, far outside of Colorado Springs. But that's where my middle school and high schools were across the street from Focus on the Family, a really giant church that has um, very conservative Christian views. I was the only Jewish kid in my high school that I knew about. And so I understood what it was like to be an extreme religious minority. And I thought, you know what? I can handle this. (laughs) I want to be able to be able to talk to people and dispel all of this. In as much as I in as much as I can and still also help the Jews. So it was a I want to help help the Jews for the Jews as Jews, and I also want to help the Jews with non-Jews, if that makes sense. And I thought I could best do both by being a rabbi. And so at 29 years old, I learned some Hebrew and went to rabbinical school for five years, and here I am, eight years later. (laughs) (laughs) Has it really only been eight years? No, I mean, it's officially been seven, but I'm just starting my eighth year. I was ordained uh, June of 15. Hmm. Okay. Yep. I've known you for five years. Yeah. And in my mind, it has always been a lot longer than that. So I've only ever known you (laughs) as Rabbi Jackson. That's right. It has been forever. Yeah, it has literally been since the beginning of our friendship. That's what I'm saying. That's right. In a beginning. Mm, Speaking of the beginning, um, I've 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 told this story before on our podcast. But um, Rachel and I met through the Sinai for Synapses Fellowship Program, which is an interfaith, interdisciplinary uh, fellowship focused on elevating the dialogue between science and religion. Trying to get the verb. I think you got that perfect. Yes. And uh, we got together in New York City, a combination of clergy and writers and scientists and different faith traditions. And somebody asked me what my tattoos mean. And um, they're 
One is from Psalms, one is from Revelation. They both have to do with creation. And what I said was that I needed a reminder that the Bible begins and ends with creation and not with destruction, and that um, there's life at both ends of the scriptures. And Rachel, having never met me before, having never spoken to me before, uh, said, and whose Bible is that? Because my Bible doesn't end that way. And <laughs> I knew in that moment that we would either be bitter enemies or best friends. And <laughs> Well done, folks. Well done, folks. And so if you open the dictionary, your American Yiddish dictionary, and you look up chutzpah, that's what you're going to find. <laughs> Is a picture of this conversation. But um. such kindness and grace. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. And I received it in that way mm-hmm. and uh, realized through our relationship how I am actually not that good at interfaith <laughs> dialogue. Like I always imagined I was. Uh-huh. Like I'm so open and inclusive and I love all of these religions and I love learning from them, but I'd only ever really learned from them from books. And so being in the presence of actual human beings, um, it occurred to me how many blind spots I had. Um, And so thank you for being that person for me. (laughs) Thank you for letting me be that Jew in your life. Um, <laughs> a real live Jew, like Pinocchio. Um, I'm a real live Aww. boy. My buddy. <laughs> That's right. I think her kid sister. I think she. Anyway, definitely. Well, it could be both because they had a kid sister and my buddy and me. My buddy. Yeah, but you're a kid. You're you're a sister. You'd be mm. my. S- Kid sister. Gender roles is another episode. Sorry. (laughs) Absolutely. Yes. Okay. (laughs) Skipping ahead. So I think one of the things, you know, and and again, lovingly picking on this, one of the things that you just mentioned, Zach, was that you read books. But my follow-up question would be, but who wrote those books? Mm. Right? That there's there's an easy way to talk about Jews. Or you could learn from Jews. And and when I'm using Jews, I mean that specifically in this particular context, but I really mean that about anything, right? Whether yeah. whatever religion or whatever culture you're trying to learn from, you can read books by someone who is like you, or you can read books by someone who is like the person and culture you're learning about. And there's a big difference. Um, so, like, I Instead have, of letting somebody else translate for you. Right. Just go to the source. Just go to the source. That's right. So like I have a um I have the NIV Christian Bible and then I also have an annotated New Testament, a Jewish annotated New Testament. Which is how does a Jew with all of their knowledge and all of sort of their baggage and their scripture background, how do they read the New Testament? And framing it as the New Testament, not as the Christian Bible. So really, really playing with those terms. And also, that's one of those things that I find um, those questions, right? What book are you reading? Are you reading the Tanakh, which is the Jewish part of the Christian Bible, um, right, which starts with Torah, but it's divvied up in a different way? Or are you reading the Old Testament, Because the Old Testament has a particular story arc that allows for a New Testament to exist. Because why would the New Testament need to exist if the story ended with a nice little bow on it, as it does with the the Hebrew Bible? Hmm. Where does the Tanakh end? So we actually separate it into three different portions, which are different portions than... The Christian Bible is separated. So it's not just how it ends. It's even just how it's, um, yeah, exactly, exactly. So it's the first five books, um, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and then Deuteronomy. And then the Ketuvim are the writings. Um Excuse me, the Nevi'im. Sorry, I was just skipping to the good stuff. The Nevi'im are the prophets. <laughs> um, right. Who who are the prophets? So, but the prophets include 
Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Chronicles, Isaiah, Ezekiel, um, etc., etc., and then the writings, which are the five Megillot, um, the five scrolls, Song of Songs, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, Esther, and then <laughs> these other books that were just kind of thrown in there, um, <laughs> like Daniel, Ezra, and Nehemiah, because um, we didn't quite know where to put them because they're... <laughs> They're not quite prophets, but also when were they written and maybe that book was closed. So, mm. yes. So each section is a separate book. And I could I could sort of show you. I can't see it because uh, you all are listening. Um, <laughs> when you get the Hebrew Bible, it is literally divided up into three volumes. So when you ask the question, where does it end? Well, it depends. It's just like three volumes. So they all they all start and end in different places. And so I think that is also part of our language usage. What specifically are we talking about? Are we talking about the New Testament? Great. I have no problem with that language. But then that that tells me instantly, ah, we're looking at this from a Christian perspective. End of story. Even if we're looking at Genesis, if you call it the uh, the Christian scriptures or if you say right like that that frames how we're having this conversation. Um, I didn't even realize uh, up until maybe five or six years ago how uh, insulting the the phrase the Old Testament even is. Yeah, because it, it is it it's it reeks of uh, supersessionalism, which mm-hmm. is like that the Jews had their chance and they rejected Jesus. And so now it's the Gentiles turn to be the chosen one and the Jews are left behind. And so that's the old Testament. And this is the new Testament, despite the fact that the new Testament's 2000 years old, it's not so new anymore, (laughs) but um, yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's that idea that it's, we discard what is old. Hmm. And that's a different, right? That's a different philosophy too, right? In Judaism, we honor what's old. <laughs> the older it is, I mean, there's even this, there's even sections in the Talmud which talk about why they, in the fourth century, third century common era, um, are so far away from the holiness that was Moses. Because it's been that many generations, that earlier generations, meaning older, actually have more spirituality and connectedness to God than we do. I don't personally ascribe to that. Um, I think I can have just as much (laughs) divine um, spirit, divine understanding and connection as someone did 2,500 years ago. Um, But just because it was 2,500 years ago doesn't make it better or worse. And so just to sort of clarify that piece, too. Yeah. So you were the only rabbi in how much of a radius? Um, So the only one in the county, for sure. Um, The only employed one here. Um, Within an hour. So there are three synagogues up in Asheville, which is about 45 minutes away by car. But that's north. That's mostly north of here. Everywhere west and south, it's over an hour and east. It's over an hour. So I actually have people driving up 45 minutes over by an hour to come to Agudas, uh, Agudas, Israel. Um, And we are currently the only synagogue in this entire area that is open every Friday night and every Saturday morning. Um, None of the other synagogues are open both of those two times. Um, yeah. So if ever, if ever anyone in the region wants to do an interfaith gathering, that means Rachel has to be there. Otherwise it's a Christian gathering. Right. 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 So how do you move from non-denominational to ecumenical? You invite me. (laughs) That feels like a lot of pressure. Yeah. At first, it was just like, oh, me? I get to be included? Oh, I'm so honored. And then it was like, I'm only here because I'm a token. Oh, my God. Couldn't you literally find anybody else? And now, it's sort of in between. It's a recognition that I'm only being invited because I am the one. But I'm okay with that. Because I would rather be included 
as the only one than than not included at all. And if I were able to pass that sort of go be a Jew somewhere to someone else in the public, I would. Um, And so actually our city created a DEI um, task force, uh, which is wonderful. And they have a Jewish person sitting on it that's not me. And I'm really what's diversity, equity and inclusion, Mm -hmm. Um, which is all the rage these days. And (laughs) they they put a Jew on it, which is really nice. And and it's not me, (laughs) which is even nicer because I I think it's really important to recognize that especially in Judaism, and I don't want to comment on other religions because I know that some are the same, some are different, but so I'll just say in Judaism, there's really nothing special about a rabbi, like at all. There's, <laughs> I literally don't have any other power than any learned Jew. Like, not at all. You don't need a rabbi to get married. You don't need a rabbi to bury you. Mm. You don't need a rabbi to have a b'nai mitzvah. You don't need a rabbi to have a baby naming. You don't need a rabbi to do services. You don't need a rabbi to eat your bread and drink your wine. You don't need a rabbi. And I what might, love that. What might you need a rabbi for? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. You might want to keep that down. <laughs> <laughs> so what do we need What did we need a rabbi for? Because a rabbi has been a job, oh, I don't know, about 1,800 years, give or take. Um, And that was for Jewish understanding of Jewish law. Here's my chicken. It has this weird-looking liver. Can I still eat it on Shabbat? Can I still have it for my Sabbath chicken dinner? Oh, rabbi of mine... It was a decider of law. That's what you need a rabbi for, is to decide whether or not you are following Jewish law. That's it. Hmm. And then, you know, um, Reform Judaism came around plus or minus 200 years ago, and then we modeled ourselves really after our Protestant cousins, and we're like, hey, look, you can use a rabbi for this, like services, because... A rabbi 300 years ago never preached, never led services, like hmm. once a year would preach. I'm like, how do I get that gig back? I'm just kidding. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> That's my favorite part. I know, I know, I know it is. <laughs> it's, it's not my favorite. Uh, not my least favorite. Uh, taking out the trash is my least favorite. Um <laughs> Taking out the trash and then just above that... Preaching. Preaching. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just, just about. No, she's <laughs> I kid, I kid, <laughs> listeners. Um, she's actually a really good preacher. But that's beside the point. <laughs> um, that's not, that's not what we're, that's not what rabbi meant. It meant teacher. It literally means my teacher, rabbi, like mine, that lovely possessiveness is what it means. Mm. Um but nowadays, it's just seen of as any other sort of pastor minister in a run-of-the-mill church. Um, and that's how we act, in addition to all these other pieces. Um, so, yes, I, I am really grateful when Jews that aren't rabbis have the ability to do things inside this mm. community. Um, most of the time, I then help them, which is great. I love being behind the scenes. I love, I like, I want to empower Jews to do things. So. So when you have well-meaning organizers of these ecumenical events Mm -hmm. who are wanting to include you and and make sure that you are elevated to some extent, uh, what are some of the ways that they have messed that up, (laughs) well-meaning as they might be? Well, one example that I'm thinking of is somebody asked, we were doing a um, MLK, a day on, a day of service. Um, So rather than saying, hey, MLK day is a day off. I can't wait to sleep in. And we said, no, wait a minute. We all have this day off. Let's do something, right? If we're going to do something, if we're going to honor MLK, let's actually honor (laughs) the man and the myth, um, so we said, okay, well, let's find all these different organizations and we'll get together and go out and do these projects for the community as a community. 
So we bring in all these different volunteers from all these different organizations. I say organizations, asterisk churches and the synagogue. Um, and we say, okay, <laughs> let's join together. Is that oh, great? Now let's one 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 um, clergy person will give the invocation, and another one will give a benediction. Beautiful. And the one that gave the invocation, knowing that this that I would be giving the benediction, knowing that our synagogue was a part of this, knowing that this wasn't a religious event in the least, right? Like, not Bill, this is a day of service so that we as a community can bring black and white and Jews and Christians and Latinx, like everyone together just as a community, which is really MLK's vision. Like that's why we were doing this. And we're going to bag rice and beans um, for a food pantry. And we're going to go out and like paint buildings. Like that's why we were gathering. And the person that was giving the invocation started with, Holy Father, and ended with, in Jesus' name we pray. Fine. I can accept this. I let the organizers know. I said, that was really uncomfortable. Just like, just so you know, that was really, that was really uncomfortable for me and for my people. The next year, they did the same thing where they invited me to give the invocation and this other person to give a benediction. And the person did the same thing. And they said, yeah, but this person is a really great preacher. <laughs> I said, that's true. And they are a really great, great preacher. And like, I was, I was there. Like, I, I was like in the moment with them. And, and it was so offensive because I'd mentioned something. I'd already mentioned how uncomfortable it was. And they said, yeah, but but we really need to represent. And this particular preacher happened to be black. And that's why they needed to be asked. Because in our community, um, I don't know what the exact demographics are, but it's approximately 85% white. Um, something like 10% um Latinx, and 5% choose not to say. I think actually our, our Latinx is much higher. And um, I mean, our Black population has just been decreasing tremendously. And so I understood that we need, that if you're going to do a celebration event and you're trying to do this like really wonderful thing, that you get the Jew and the Black preacher together. <laughs> and so I, I really applauded that. The challenge is that it felt that they were in that they were in conflict with one another unnecessarily. So hmm. I don't know if that answers that anecdote answers sort of what you were thinking. That that brings up a a, a really um, a really good question for me. Um, well, so that was a, pr a a prayer service, correct? Well, it was the idea that we wanted to start with prayer and end with prayer, but this the, what we were doing in between wasn't a prayer. Okay. It was sort of like if you go to a nonprofit organization gala dinner, they're going to open with a an invocation, okay, right, and they're going to end with a benediction. Same kind of thing. Um, maybe that's maybe that's just here. Maybe that's just because we're in the south. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, no, no, okay. no, it's not. Um, I And I, I ask this um, because I, well, so I have um, CPE training, clinical yes. pastoral education, which Ooh. is a very uh, ecumenical yes. form of training, right? I, yeah, um, I've got, I've got two units. That's great. Woohoo. Um, I think it is <laughs> amazing education. Anyway, the thing, one of the things that I took away from that is that People get sick from all kinds of faith backgrounds. People who are very devout, people who don't care, people who are um, adamantly against any kind of religious tradition. And your role as a chaplain is to meet folks where they are, right? So we would have these conversations about praying with patients, um, particularly with um, patients who do not pray in the name of Jesus, 
which, you know, as a Christian pastor, that is how I I pray. That is that is how I pray. However, when I'm with somebody who is on their deathbed, who is going through the most traumatic part of their life, it is not my job to then impose that. Correct? So the the way that I would pray would be um we pray this in the many names you are known. Do you have any suggestions on how to how to pray in a more interfaith way? Because I think in many ways, Christians don't know how to do it. Um, and I don't know that, I think because we're in the majority, we don't think we have to, mm-hmm. right? Um, yep. So uh, I don't always think it's intentional. I think it is intentional sometimes, but I, I think a lot of it is ignorance. Um, you have any helpful suggestions on how to be? Yeah. No, that's great. I think my two suggestions would be um, pretty much English speakers agree on God. Mm, You don't need Jesus. You don't need Adonai, Elohim, Shekhinah. Like, I can give you 70 names of—I can give you 70 names of the Jewish God. Um, Mm. You know lots of names for Jesus— or just yeah. Jesus, right? So just God, and then also not gendered or rolled. So not Father or Son or Spirit or Him or, right, just hmm. we pray to you, God, for. Yeah. Or we are the are the characters. Or God, I am looking for your blessing on this. Just, just God. And and if and so because that's presuming you're in a um, theological place. If we're talking just straight up, well, then we just (laughs) then we've got like divine and the universe and the essence of all. That's one of the words that I used recently at a pride picnic. Right, the essence of all. That works really well. Right. So I was I was given, and here's where I also want to say, and I, and I. I don't know how to share this story without sounding like I am doing a humble brag, but I want to just name that I'm trying really, I like, I, that's not my intent. And so you're welcome to correct me, but I use this <laughs> as illustration of what it means to be an ally. Also, um, I was asked to give a, an invocation at a pride picnic. I am a cis hetero woman. I said, that is a lovely, but they wanted like, hey, like they they know me and I'm a good speaker and I give a lovely invocation. I said, do you have any queer folks <laughs> that are doing this? It, like who else is doing this? And then, then I ended up pairing with um, an MCC pastor who is mm. queer um, and leads a queer church in the area. And she and I did it together. And I think that's one of the things that it means to be an ally is when someone asks you and you're in the majority to say, hey, what about this minority that we're either talking to or talking about? Where's their voice? And I think that's true in religious circles as well as all of the other circles that we find ourselves in. But since we're talking religion today, you know, if you're gonna <laughs> if you're gonna talk about in a, in an ecumenical space, you know, give someone else the microphone and make sure that the organizers give someone else the microphone. It's sort of like, mm-hmm. you know, picking on you, Zach, for a second. Please. Right? No manals, <laughs> right? Say no to manals. Say no to all male panels. To man, I thought you mammals. said mammals. I thought, I thought we were like, like oh, yeah. all no reptilians now. No. You're only mammals. allowed to eat fowl. No more mammals, <laughs> right? So if you get asked, could you talk about this? You say, great, who else is speaking? And you go, huh, those seem like they're all men. Have you asked women? Here's a list of women I think you could ask. And I think Mm. that's the job of being an ally, just like the two of you are in this moment saying, hey, how do we do interfaith? I don't know. Let's bring someone on that's not Christian. (laughs) So that's our obligation, I think. 
Centering, centering voices that aren't centered. Correct. Correct. And so let me, let me riff off of that. And I feel like I'm talking a whole bunch. So if you- We're interviewing you. Episode. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. It's great. I want to make sure I'm not taking up too much space here. Um, when we talk, because it's not always possible- I also want to be really realistic. It's not always possible. There might not be a Jew in your town. There might not be a synagogue in your town. There might, like, you might only be able to know them from afar, right? TikTok has some amazing, and Instagram have some amazing rabbis who are doing this work. Um, but you may not, you may not have that. Look at your bookshelves. Right? Take a look at your bookshelves. And so, um, in the churches that the two of you came from, or your public library, think about the not Christian section. Hmm. Either in the religious, the adult religion section, or in, for the kids. What pops up? Like, what, what books or what genre comes to mind when, you, when I say Jewish books? What comes to mind? So, what... Jewish books would we have found on our bookshelves? Yeah. Yeah. At my previous church, nothing okay. other than no. I, I no, I put I, I put a copy of uh of the Tanakh, but that's that's it. Uh-huh. Um there was a Jewish studies Bible, but it was not written by a Jew. Um yeah. Nicole, you said Holocaust books. Things about right? the Holocaust, That's, yeah, like, and may or may not have actually been written by Jewish folks. So that would be what I would think. Probably, probably be it. Yeah. So you probably have the Diary of Anne Frank. Maybe have um, Night or the Dawn series, Dawn Trilogy by Elie Wiesel. Um, maybe you throw in the Tanakh to be like, hey, look, they have a Bible too. Um, <laughs> it was next to the Quran. Yeah. Right. We had, exactly. We had to the. Them. Yeah. Right. Yeah, the Quran. Right. <laughs> yep. um, right. I bring that up because, oh, and you might have had something about maybe the Spanish Inquisition or the Crusades. Um, those make us look bad. Well, that's true, but most of history does. Um, just <laughs> you're not wrong. <laughs> but if we were gonna put obvious. stuff on our bookshelf, <laughs> we probably the, wouldn't put that on our bookshelf. Put the whole yeah. religion on blast. Yeah. All right. that's, that's a different um, episode. <laughs> those those are glorifying and celebrating the death of Jews. Right? If we think about that. Oh, the Holocaust was a tragedy. Please hear me. Yes, of course. The rabbi is not saying that the Holocaust <laughs> was not a tragedy. That uh, should be the tagline of the episode. Um, yeah, the yeah, rabbi yeah. is not saying. Not what saying the rabbi that. does not say. That's yeah. right. Um, but where are the books about living Jews? Where are the books about the positive things that Jews have done in society, for society? I really don't like the for society because that means the Jews not inside society itself. That's not a great look either. Um, but like, how about just a Jew being a Jew? How about just a Jew like walk into synagogue? And it doesn't have to be this like really heavy, um, just really heavy stuff. Um, mm. What about just... Just Jews as people, that's a novel concept. Yeah. And if we, if we then go to the kids section um, and they look at the holiday. So my public library has this amazing children's library, like absolutely amazing. And they have this entire wall called Holidays. And this entire wall of holiday books has one shelf for Jewish holidays, and that one shelf of Jewish holidays on this entire wall is 90% Hanukkah. Mm. And Hanukkah is a huge deal, right? It's like Jewish Christmas, right? It is so not like Jewish Christmas. <laughs> it is so a nothing holiday except 
for the pain that Jews feel in America specifically because Christmas is such a huge holiday that we go, well, well, I'd like something. <laughs> Please, sir, maybe just a little. Um <laughs> And and it's 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 a nothing holiday. It's a rabbinic holiday. It's not even a Torah holiday. It is not even about giving presents. It's about lighting the light for thirty minutes for eight days and eating fried food. So you want mozzarella sticks and potato pancakes. Um, you name it. If it's fried, that's what you eat. Like and that's it. And you move on with life. Um, our holidays, right? Like, what are the books saying? Who told you that 90% of this should be Hanukkah? Hmm. At the same time, while we're on the December holiday topic, and this coming year, Christmas and Hanukkah overlap, um, Hmm. like, totally, 100%, um... Hanukkah starts, I believe, the 23rd or the 24th this year. Like, mm. yeah, yeah, that's going to be fun. There's not going to be one iota of anything at Target. Um, yeah. No ugly sweaters, which is fine, which is fine. <laughs> Christmas is a Christian holiday. Things rabbis do say. Christmas is a Christian (laughs) holiday. Christmas is not a secular holiday. There is nothing secular about Christmas. Not candy canes, not wreaths, not Santa Claus, not Christmas trees, not songs. Not one of those things is secular, except the majority of people, even those who do not consider themselves church-going Christians or who consider themselves atheists, celebrate it. Muzzle off to them. It's still not a secular holiday. So, when you go into a public school and these little second graders are doing something in December for a craft or they're doing a math project and you're adding up candy canes, that's Christmas. That's Christian. How do we be ecumenical? How do we be inclusive? Just don't do it. It's really it's really very simple as that. It's it's really it's really very simple. If you would not do this lesson plan in June, then it's not secular. Hmm. Hmm. Are you going to teach children how to count using marshmallow peeps in May? No, that's Easter. You really only have peeps in Easter. I mean, they now have peeps for everything, but that not terrible, too. Terrible, except for science experiments. Then they're amazing. Zach's mom loves them. I don't understand. I Sorry, love mom, them. if you're listening to this. Yeah. I we love, love you. Them. We love you, Jer. Yeah. Yes. So much. Good for experiments. <laughs> Buy like a $10 microwave from your local Goodwill or your local thrift store and go to town with peeps. Like, it is so much fun. <laughs> like, just put a peep in there as is. Put a peep in water in there. Uh, like, there's so much you can do with peeps other than eat them. But if you're not going to if you're not going to do these things in June, that means there's probably something religious about them. You're not going to decorate um, a poinsettia wreath in February. And so, how do we not do that? Just don't. Hmm. Um, so I really like that's a we call it the December dilemma. Because what do you do? What do you do as a parent? What do you do as a Jew? What do you do as a rabbi? What like what do you do in this society when December rolls around? And how do you handle those those little hearts that are breaking? How do you handle that as a mom? Yeah, really. Delicately and graciously. And I really try not to spoil it for the other parents because Santa isn't real. And and not having your own child be the six-year-old who tells the other classmates Santa's not real. Like, that's a real delicate balance because he's going, well, how come I didn't get gifts from Santa? And yeah. not being like, because all the other parents are lying to their children. I don't know. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I don't lie to you. Like, not 
not doing that. <laughs> That's oh, how I mean, not to you, handle it. <laughs> you don't get fifth century bishops that magically fly through the air to disperse expensive you know, electronic presence. You no, know, it's um yeah ridiculous. That's, and not not letting my issues with that be projected onto my child. <laughs> so how do we handle sure. it? The same way we handle all of the other things that why is everything closed on Sunday mornings? Why mm-hmm. do I have to go to work on Saturday mornings and I can't do X, Y, and Z events with him that are only on Saturdays? The same way that I handle that we work and we go to synagogue on Friday nights instead of going downtown to the events down there. The same way that we handle every cross that is in this area that says Jesus saves. Hmm. For you, uh, for your sins, Jesus died. Everywhere. Really? I, oh. And, and we're not talking like those cute little crosses that are like four foot or five foot. We're talking like 20 foot crosses. Yeah, right, little for like, crosses. Like these. <laughs> I tell you, if Jesus ever does come back, he's going to be pissed. <laughs> you know. He's, you be like, what part of the story made you think I liked these things? Also, that's, that's not what I look worst like. Day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Jesus comes and mansplains carpentry to us. <laughs> I want to be there for that. Can, yeah. can I be there for that? So I think as a Jew, as a mother of a Jew, um, and as a Jewish mother, we deal with it every day. It's pronounced in December. It's pronounced around these holidays, but it's there every day. And I think that's something that the majority doesn't realize. Again, whatever the majority is, that it's there all the time, that all of those kid shows that have these wonderful specials, you know, Mm. the Christmas specials that are then shown in schools, (laughs) that there, there aren't those. There isn't that specialness. Um. And so one of the things that I say, in addition to sort of talking about it, is also appreciating that it exists, period. Because let's look at this by the numbers, right? Just mm. by the numbers. How many people live in America? Do you know? Ish. A lot. A lot. Could you quantify <laughs> that, at least in a round way? Six under, million? Under a billion. I don't know. Right? 330 million people live in America. Give that, or take. that is under a billion. Take out my guess. Yeah. <laughs> but we'll use your guess, Nicole. Right. We'll use your guess to say about how many Jews are there in America. About six, seven million, maybe. So hmm. mathematically speaking, 330 million people in our country, with maybe seven million of them as Jews, which is 2%. But let's also really ask the question, where do Jews live? If I were to ask you, where do Jews live? Everywhere. You're so sweet. No. No. The Northeast and California. Uh Uh-huh. And throw in the sixth borough of uh, Florida. Mm. It's just the Northeast, but south. The sixth borough. It's Miami (laughs) and Boca. Um, That's the sixth borough. Uh Uh-huh. All right, so it's the Northeast, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Pennsylvania, Florida, and California. Between those areas, that is 80% of the Jews in the country, which leaves Mm. about one and a half million Jews for the rest of the country. And Mm. then you throw in cities like Chicago and a little bit in Cincinnati and a few places in Texas, God help them. Um... (sighs) And generally, Jews don't live everywhere. So Hmm. I look at this as gratitude. I say, can you believe it? Our local Target has Hanukkah candles. How cool is that? And you know what they had this year? They had Hanukkah wrapping paper with dreidels and dogs. And then cats (laughs) and Hanukkiot. Like, that's really cool. So approaching it from the sense of we are such an, a teeny tiny minority in the overwhelming majority of places in our country that the fact that anyone does anything for us, we should celebrate that. We should hmm. celebrate that other people are recognizing that there is religious diversity and maybe we can also help others who may not even get what we get. Let's go and celebrate 
let's make sure that Ramadan gets something. Let's go and make sure that there's cards for the end of Ramadan. Let's go, like, that's mm. what we do with it. We make sure that we have the gratitude of recognition that we're a minority and that's okay. And the majority does not have to bend to us. But what is not okay is if there's hatred or meanness or an unwillingness to be uneducated. That's not okay. That's a generous, that's very generous. It's very generous. I've really appreciated um, your reminder to make sure you are including the people that you are trying to include um, from their perspectives, because um, otherwise you end up with things like Christian satyrs. Oh my God! Which... Okay, I need a soapbox. Can I? Can I have a soapbox, please? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Here, okay. The ball okay. On the tee. Okay. This. Okay. No. Just <laughs> no. Stop it. End the segment right there. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus's last supper was not a Seder. Not possible. Why? Because Jesus existed during the time of the temple. And if you have the temple, guess where we're making sacrifices? In the temple. Not in some sort of showy, hey, by the way, we're so really sad, so let's have this, let's have this meal to commemorate what Jesus, like what we used to do way back when, and Jesus did it too. Nope. Just no. So now you say, well, I want to do the Seder that Jesus did. Jesus never had that kind of Seder. So end of story there. Number two, if you're having a Seder, it is completely acculturation. A Seder Mm -hmm. is the experience of the Jews remembering the exodus from Egypt as Jews. If you are not a Jew... You did not experience the exodus from Egypt. And you're saying, well, but those were my ancestors. And as a Christian, we came from Judaism. Fantastic. Find your local synagogue and go to theirs. Hmm. Number three, if for still some reason you did not heed suggestions one and two, (laughs) and you still need to have a seder in your church or in your chavara, your group, your prayer people, please, please, for the love of all Jews, make it a Jewish seder that doesn't then end with the redemption of Jesus. Mm. (sighs) Yeah. Because I was asked to lead one of those once, and I read it, and I went, oh, no, you have the wrong person. Mm -mm. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. No. So. Mm. Wait, somebody asked you to, to, like, be a part of something that ended with Jesus? Where the third cup was the birth of Jesus, and the fourth cup was Jesus dying on the cross and coming back. They really didn't see that as problematic. Not. you in that. Not one iota. Not and yeah, so that's my soapbox. Just no. <laughs> Just say no. Just say to no Christian to Christian satyrs. <laughs> I'm giving you, you lots of taglines. Really, <laughs> if you'd really like to replicate Jesus's Last Supper, the best way to do it is like a whole lot of fig newtons and a ton of red wine. I mean, that's mm. like. The disciples were so drunk, they couldn't stay awake with him in the garden. Peter was so tipsy, he tried to stab a guy and cut off his ear because he wasn't wasn't able to, you know, balance himself. Who stabs downward like that? No, they were were drunk on Fig Newtons and wine. So just do that and just have a great night. It sounds like Purim. We should do that on on Sunday. (laughs) We're taking communion together every week. Fig Newtons and wine. Yeah. And then get on a kayak and go down the river. Anyway. Oh, yes. more dangerous then. <laughs> go on the kayak first. And I then guess. then finish, you know, put in your dry bag the fig newtons and the wine. Which, by the way, you can get wine in a can. So you don't have to worry about it breaking. <laughs> wine in a can. can? Wine in a can. Yeah, I just did that for, for a wedding that I was a part of. We had to hike for a you know, mm. half mile down. Like, hike. It was a, it was a hike. It was scrambling over rocks, and they asked me to bring the wine, and so I went to my my local winery, uh, or my local um, 
place that sells wine. And <laughs> I said, I need some wine that won't break. And she's like, here's a can from South Africa. I went, sold. So, wow. Awesome. Wine in a can. Very interesting. And it was good. No. <laughs> so, so you mentioned the fact that uh, Jews are what, 2% of the population? In America. In America have always been a small percentage in Europe, um, but have always been seemingly always been villainized by the Christian mm-hmm. major- majority as like this horribly convenient spa- scapegoat. Um, and that has been on the rise again, yeah. um, especially since the beginning of the Trump era. Um, how can we be better allies and support in, in the in the face of a new wave of anti-Semitism. Say something. Number one, call it out when you see it. Call it out when you hear it. Say, that is inappropriate. From the quote-unquote mild statements of, I hate that I'm going to say this, but I'm going to say this. I mean, no offense by it, but some people don't realize that this is actually an insult. So I'm going to clarify that, yes, this is an insult and it should be stopped. Um, I'm going to Jew you down. That is an insulting phrase and like in no redeemable way so if you hear that stop it it's not okay obviously derogatory terms not okay I mean, these are these are pretty obvious it's unlikely that people are going to see the extreme anti-semitism of things like swastikas um right <laughs> that's that's just in in real strong neo-nazi holds which they do exist um but that's not that's really here. not what most people are going to. Yeah, here. Yeah. In 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 the Pennsylvania Southeast area, That's we have a true. lot of yeah. clan strongholds, which Neo-Nazi they've all folk. changed their they've changed their names and they've changed their outfits, but it's the same people. Yeah, same thing. Right. Those are that is the overt. Um, or dog whistle anti-Semitism that we've come to know and despise for millennia, right? The the money motif, the um, blood libel motif, the um, caricatures of noses and ears, right? That's that's just old news at this point, right? And that often comes from the right. Um, conservative and uh, religious and political right is usually where that kind of anti-Semitism shows up. We are accustomed to this, but say something. Like, don't, don't let, even if there's no Jews around, even if, or even if there's hidden Yidden, right, that you don't know if someone is a Jew that's standing next to you, stand up, because that's the right thing to do. So that's number one. Um, number two, Vote like your politics include other people. Mm. Well. Uh, <laughs> so just just putting that one out there. Um, number three, recognizing that anti-Semitism has lots of faces. One of the ones that we're seeing nowadays is anti-Zionism as the new anti-Semitism. Mm. Where the country of Israel is... Oh, 60, no, 75, almost 75 years old, 74 years old this year, right? That's a young country as far as countries are concerned, right? I mean, certainly there's younger ones, but it's not an old country. It is still figuring out what to do. It it wants to be a democracy. It's kind of a theocracy. It really doesn't know what it's doing. It lives in an existential place of like all the countries around it hate it and then there's this hated people that literally nobody wants and what are they supposed to do they're in an untenable situation and i'm not going to go into israeli politics right now but if you say that israel shouldn't exist that's a form of anti-semitism i do not believe in our american government right now i believe our government is broken i believe it is harming a lot of people I am still a citizen of this country, and I will still fight for it. I believe that the country of Israel is not the best for all of its citizens and all of the people that live there, and it's trying to do the best that it can, and I still love and support it. 
those are two very different statements than saying, or that's a very different than statement than saying, Israel is a horrible country and it shouldn't exist. Right. That's a form of anti-Semitism, and we're seeing that far much more from a religious and political left. Um, and that that feels very dangerous because it's really hard to say, I support Israel. It's like, well, yeah, and, <laughs> you know, it's a dysfunctional family. We all have dysfunctional families, and this one just happens to be in the public. But but knowing your own, knowing, doing the research, knowing why the media is biased, which medias are biased. New York Times has some very challenging biases, frankly, when it reports things that do not feel good as a Jew to read, frankly. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that would be another thing is to know what the sources are saying and not just to believe the good sources, the like, quote unquote good um, Obviously, we're not talking about news sources that aren't actual news. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Not those. Um, But to to understand, and if you really want to understand what's going on in a different country, perhaps also read their newspapers. Read the English version of Haaretz. Go to Al Jazeera. Go to the BBC. Get out of American understanding of the Washington Post or the New York Times or something like that to get a broader perspective of what's happening in a different country and recognize that is one teeny tiny country with, I don't know, 10 million-ish people in it, depending how you count who's in and who's out, which is a whole political conversation. Is anyone here really concerned about what's going on in Georgia, the country? Does anyone know what is going on currently in Colombia? <laughs> Can you tell me something about Peru or Brazil? No? Oh, weird, because those countries have tens of millions of people in them, but what they do in their governments and how they're treating people, somehow that doesn't matter? But this tiny little country that's full of Jews, that's run by Jews, suddenly we care? Why do we care so much? And asking, like, why do we care so much? Please don't tell me it's a humanitarian thing. Because we can look at the rest of the country, the rest, <laughs> excuse me, the rest of the world and go, mm, if it were really a humanitarian thing, perhaps we'd be paying attention to literally 80% more of the other countries in the world. So really looking at, and because it comes from a theological standpoint, well, that's, that's Jesus's birth. Okay, so then you're theologically connected to the land as history, not the land in the present. And those are very different mm. things. Um, so that's, those are some, those are just some ways that I'd, I deal with anti-Semitism. And going back to what I said about the bookshelf, making sure we talk about living Jews. Don't just glorify dead Jews. Mm. That, and if I can add one for the preachers out there. Um, when you read from or preach from the Gospel of John, <laughs> um, John has been used as an anti-Semitic tool for so long. John refers to the Jewish well, leaders that opposed Jesus, a very specific subset mm-hmm. of leaders, as the Jews. And so when you read from the Gospel of John, most English translations will just say, and the Jews opposed him, and the Jews said this. And when you read it, my goodness, it really does sound like it is Christian Jesus against the Jewish opposition, when that is very much not the case. And um, even, like I said, it's a small opposition from within a subset of a group. And it's usually the Pharisaical group because Jesus was most closely related to the Pharisees and you always fight with your in-group. Um, so be careful about how you read uh, from John. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, John has been used as a weapon against yeah. the Jews for so long. John also probably had, uh, the writer of John anyway, had a, a bone to pick. Um, there was some conflict happening in that part of the world at that time, post-destruction of the temple, all that stuff. But that's a different episode, I think. <laughs> or at all times, and, uh, you know. <laughs> <or> <laughs> Give me 60 years where there's not a conflict in that part of the world, and I'll show you Ghanadin. <laughs> <laughs> well, Rachel, thank you so much 
for taking your time in the middle of what is a wild and crazy 10 days of, <laughs> of, of life for you, in the middle of what is a wild and crazy period of the country and a lot of things that people are dealing with now and just a lot of Christians imposing themselves and their values on the world. Um, but thank you for being a friend and an example and a rabbi in these times and for sharing some of your wisdom with us today. Thank you for the invitation and for the ability to just sort of word <laughs> spill a whole bunch of words <laughs> into the microphone and hope that they come out well. Um, but I think it's really they important. I think it's important for us to to talk to one another. Um, so thank you for this opportunity. Yeah. And if you want to hear more of Rachel, um, you can listen to yesterday's episode of the Down the Wormhole podcast in which Rachel describes um, the difference between healing and curing in mm. both a uh, religious and a medical sense. Um, it's a really good episode. I'm almost done editing it. <laughs> <laughs> well, we all look forward to listening to that one and this one. <laughs> Thank you, Rachel. This was wonderful. <laughs>